This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Ekabumi Charles Illich. Ekabumi is a poet, an artist, a husband, a student, and a teacher of classical tantric hatha yoga. He holds a bachelor's degree in fine arts from Cal State Long Beach with an emphasis in figurative art. Yet his creativity is expressed in many ways with the encouragement of his guru, Dharmanidhi Sarasvati. He retired from producing poetry events in 2010 in order to focus on producing sacred art and teaching. At that time, he also became a regular student of Nepalese master painter Dinesh Charan. And in 2011, he took a trip to India to study yantra and the painting of devas in the lineage of Harish Johari. With Sounds True, Ekabumi has released a new book called The Shakti Coloring Book, Goddesses, Mandalas, and the Power of Sacred Geometry. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Ekabumi and I spoke about the connection between the practice of yoga and the goddesses of ancient India. We also talked about how he understands goddesses as archetypal energies, as embodiments of particular virtues, and as energetic beings. And most importantly, how our own energy is repatterned when we invite goddesses into our life. Finally, we talked about devotion and the practice of sacred art, and how even someone who is a beginner in what Ekabumi calls deity practice can begin to relate to the energy of the goddess. Here's my conversation with Charles Ekabumi Alec. Welcome, Ekabumi. It's such a pleasure to have this chance to talk with you. It is such a joy to be talking with you again. Thank you. I know that in your work as a sacred artist, that process is as important as the product. And even this Mm -hmm. conversation, if you will, the process is as important as the product, as the outcome of the conversation. And I wonder if in that spirit you would be willing to begin our conversation with some type of invocation, if that would work for you. Oh, I'd be delighted. That would be so much fun. So, I'm um, wary of saying actual mantras um, to the public, so if you don't mind, I'll just uh, just give kind of a, an English, sort of a general invocation to the goddess and ask her to bless that conversation. Is that okay? Sounds perfect. Cool. So I'd like to call on Ma Ganeshini Benayaki. She is the very first goddess in the book, and I made a deal with her before I began with the urging of one of my teachers 
to make sure that she would bring to each reader and hopefully to each of the listeners exactly what they needed, no more, no less, what was appropriate for them in this moment, in this body, this time. And so I call on Ma Ganeshini and ask her to look over us and guide us during this conversation and to make sure that everyone gets exactly what they need from it. Beautiful. Tell our listeners a little bit about the Shakti coloring book and the process that you went through to create a coloring book for adults, question mark? <laughs> well, um, I, I certainly, part of the reason why I went to my teacher and asked her um, for guidance on this was I was concerned some of these goddesses are very powerful. And um, I, I've learned a lot in the last year. I thought that some of these goddesses, that I thought that a wrathful goddess meant that it was inevitable that if you invoke this goddess, you're about to get a whooping. And that really is not the case. Um, even if we only think of them as archetypal energy, it's intelligent energy. It's, it's conscious and aware energy. And they bring the lessons that are needed in that moment, each in their own unique way. So this book was a huge process of discovery for me as well. Um, we started out, you and I, when we talked about this there at uh, Sounds True headquarters, uh, we talked about a coloring book. And then I was so startled and gratified and humbled and challenged and honored when y'all said, we don't just want a 45-page book of pictures. We really want to go on a, on a journey. We want to understand this. We want to know the practice. What is, what is the spiritual practice of sacred art? And um, that really started me on a journey, not only to think about what I do that seems to be effective, but I use social media and the internet and my connections and the scholars that I know and bought thousands of dollars in books, don't tell my wife, and um, really dug into the whole tradition in a much more profound way. And I sat with each of the goddesses and chanted their mantras. I interviewed artists in uh, India and Nepal and Tibet, as well as um, artists who have come here from the old world. And uh, I learned so much. I learned so, so much and distilled it into a package that's right here. That's, it's, not, it's not just fun. <laughs> so in the sense that it's an adult book, there's a lot of depth here. It's um, one of the common things that people who uh, read the book early on said, whoa, this is more than just a coloring book. And I'd say, well, it, it's a fully realized coloring book. Um, that even kids can enjoy it, and certainly some kids already are enjoying it. Um, but it's also got the kind of depth that any kid of any age could enjoy it and really get a lot out of it. Now, Sally Kempton, who is well known as a writer within the yoga tradition, in the foreword mm -hmm. to the book, she writes... Ekabumi is an adept in the approach to enlightenment known as deity practice. And here you are, you're talking about the goddesses and that in the Shakti mm -hmm. coloring book, people have a chance to mm -hmm. draw in, color in these goddesses. Tell our listeners what deity practice is and how it works. Okay, well, two things. One is if um, you asked a... Uh, uh, normal, everyday, walking down the street, orthodox Hindu person, um, what deity practices, it's really about worshiping a deity. It's religious. And I'm not um, at all distancing myself from that. That's also true. But really, for this book, 
I decided to take a what I've been calling in the book a more yogic approach, which is to recognize them as aspects of our most expansive self. Not in a psychological sense, like this is a strictly an archetype in my imagination that informs my behavior and my values, but rather that this is an intrinsic part of the the, the universe itself, and that these energies move through all beings, that we can awaken and invoke them in our own experience. And then, in fact, when we are aware of them, when we build a relationship, and this is what I wanted to emphasize here, when we build a relationship with these patterns of consciousness, that the virtue, blessing, power that they exemplify will actually manifest in our own life in a way that makes our life more enjoyable for ourselves and everyone around us. So for me, deity practice is a relationship with a specific uh, quality of the universe. Can you give me an example from your own life and practice of how a relationship with such a quality in the form of a goddess Mm -hmm. has changed you, has worked on you? Oh, goodness. Well, I'll um, I'll give you the easy one, which is uh, Kali. So um, Sally, of course, has um, wonderful teachings on uh, how to interact with these goddesses, how to understand them, and the tradition itself offers many, many stories about these goddesses. And the mythology isn't just a quaint story or even a historical account, which is debatable in some of their cases, um, because sometimes people graduate to more auspicious standing. Um, and that really does seem to be the case with some of the goddesses, that they were once people. <laughs> But setting that, all of that aside... Now, hold on a second. Hold on a second, Ekabumi. I can imagine okay. that a listener at this point is like, what? What are you talking about? So you're saying that some of the goddesses, a goddess like Kali, was once a human being who then became a goddess? Is that what you're saying? Well, in the case of a goddess like Matangi, um, that does seem to be, near as we can tell, according to the scholars I've talked to, there's good evidence that she was once a human, um, a hum- once a human being. Now, now, this said, we've got to remember that in the Shakta tradition, you, Tammy, any woman, is actually a physical manifestation of the goddess's primordial energy. So, every single female on the planet is an incarnation of the goddess. But some people, there's a special relationship, and as we progress in our practice, that relationship becomes more and more clear. And we should understand that not all goddesses are enlightened. So just as human beings can become more aligned, more expansive, more clear, and that they grow as a spiritual being, that goddesses can too. And in fact, there seems to be an avenue in which human beings, like uh, the historical Buddha, for example, can actually kind of graduate to the place where they're uh, fulfilling the role or acting out the duties, uh, uh, the Buddha embodying compassion, for example, um, that they can actually begin fulfilling the role of being this primordial blessing power of an enlightened virtue. And they can actually fulfill that role as a goddess. And there seems to be really good evidence for that. I haven't seen it in my life. (laughs) Um, It apparently takes a very long time. But it does seem to happen. And as my teacher has said, it also seems to be true that minor deities uh, graduate, that they do their own practice, that they learn, that they become fully realized, and that they go from being just, uh, say, like a little village goddess 
to being a great Mahadeva. And a good example of that is uh, Durga, who is Vindachal, who is a local goddess of the Vindachal Mountains, and has now become this great Mahadeva that many people think is like the Shakti. They think that that's just her, it's Durga. And we know now, because of modern uh, archaeology and anthropology, that she originated as a local regional uh, mountain goddess. And these things do change over time, and that's not an untruth. That uh, is not a um, fabrication. It's this very uh, rich and vibrant and mysterious relationship with the primordial truth in all of us. Um, and in fact, the heart of this practice is really to realize yourself. When you're doing deity practice, you eventually do realize yourself as a deity, not in an egoistic sense like I'm an all-powerful creator of the universe, but rather as I'm the little finger of the goddess, sort of projecting or manifesting herself into three-dimensional reality and expressing her virtues in day-to-day life. That really, really is, when we talk about the yogic practice, that you are literally practicing being an emanation of that deity's blessing power. Okay, now let's circle back. You were talking about Kali, and you were talking about how in your own right. life, working with Kali as a deity transformed you in some ways. So tell us about that. Well, um, I'll give the short version, which is uh, I moved to Berkeley, which has an awful lot of hippie uh, history and also has a, a large um, uh, Indian uh, population of uh, people from India who've moved here. And there are several stores that sell um, items from India. And I moved here and I thought, oh, I've got a new Berkeley apartment. I need some art on the walls. I didn't want to just look at my own art. I was like, I want some more color in my life. I want some, some excitement. And I went and bought a Kali poster and put it off right over my computer desk. So I looked at it every day for hours, right? And my life went to hell. <laughs> and um, I didn't really understand what was going on. I had no clue. And um, Kali is is one of her qualities is chaos. And um, some of the more wrathful goddesses, uh, depending on your experience and whether you treat them respectfully or not, can really shake things up in your life. And uh, the way that I understand Colleen now, it is said that one of the fruits of her practice is fearlessness. This is why she's completely nude. She is, quote-unquote, sky-clad. There's nothing to hide there. She is completely fearless. All of her attributes are just hanging out. She's just, boom, this, this primordial, raw quality of uh, the realized, of the fully realized being. And, uh, and the process of figuring out my life and understanding how I was messing up and bringing everything back together again, um, I really turned to yoga um, and yogic practice and eventually to um, the mythology of India and to the deities to sort of understand myself better. And in that process, um, I don't want to say I've become fearless um, in the sense of not being afraid of the car that's barreling down the street at me, but I really like my fear and the distance I felt with these deities. They're no longer exotic mythological figures. Um, the fear that I had of, say, I, I know this, this is embarrassing to say, but I, I don't know how else to put it. I stopped being afraid of the dark. I, I just, I can walk through the dark in the forest or at my home, and there's none of this sort of strange, creepy feeling of 
like I'm being watched or that there's something scary out there that's going to get me. I just have this incredible, profound confidence in the validity of just being here that I didn't have before. And so I really say that after building this relationship with this very challenging goddess, that the fruit of her practice, when I read, oh yeah, the Kali gives fearlessness, that's the fruit of her practice, I was like, oh yeah, of course, (laughs) that would have to be the fruit of working with her. And I would have to say that in my case, that was really true. And it was really a joy to do the research after I'd had the experience and to have that external confirmation. And um, without going into all of the details, I I just got to say that this has been true for me working with all of these goddesses, that each time, because sometimes these goddesses would take me weeks to research and sketch and draw. And during that time, because I'm chanting thousands and thousands of rounds of their mantra, and I'm contemplating them deeply, and what is their virtue power, and what is the fruit of their sadhana, and how are people going to understand them in the West if I try and explain it, that I started having experiences in my own life that reflected a deepening relationship with the virtues that they exemplify, whether it's generosity that uh, Lakshmi exemplifies, or selfless sacrifice that Chinamastas represents, Each of the goddesses is a complete being, but tends to exemplify one particular or a handful of particular virtues. And I really, really felt that. I'm telling you, this was really a roller coaster ride of a a year and a half that (laughs) that I was illustrating the images for this book. It was really something else. Now, you mentioned helping people in the West find access routes to these goddesses. And I'm curious... It's not easy. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, for people who just even hear the word goddess and immediately Ah. roll their eyes in some sense, like, okay, great, we're now dealing with a mythic level of consciousness. This is Mm -hmm. mythology, superstition, thousands of years ago. This is kind of the best that people could do. Really? You really want me (laughs) to start relating to goddesses? Like, don't you have anything else for me? How do you respond to well, that kind of, you know, really in a dialogue kind of way? I'm not closed-minded, but I just don't know how to relate. Mm-hmm. Well, Sally, Sally's, um, Sally's introduction to the book, um, her preface, really she goes for in what she describes, and I think it's very useful for Westerners as a, as a door into it. They talk about archetypes and archetypal energies. And each of us, I, I used to coach poets in performance. And like actors, we would talk about what archetype are you embodying when you're on stage? And I think that when the doors close on an elevator and the fire alarm goes off, one person is going to be the hero. One person's going to be the tinkerer trying to figure out how to open the doors again. Another person's going to lose their mind and be the child, right? That we kind of fall into these roles in a very natural way that psychologists have talked about as archetypes. So that's, that's one way in, and these goddesses shouldn't be misunderstood as aspects of our psychology. That's, that's reductive. But another way into this as a yogic practitioner is to really think, okay, I really want to cultivate abundance in my life, or I really want to cultivate fearlessness in my life, or I just straight up want to cultivate power. <laughs> that's true, too. I mean, it really is true. People go for that one. And you can think about building a relationship with this virtue, and that's also a goddess. 
So we can just set aside all these complicated names, Tripurasundari and uh, Chinamasta and Dumulati. You know, we can set aside all the jargon for a moment and just say, what is the virtue that you want to bring into your life? What do you feel is the virtue that you don't understand really well that's lacking? What is uh, the part of you that you've been seeking in others relentlessly and maybe you've been having unfulfilling relationships because you're looking for something in your partners that I uh, really need to find in yourself. <laughs> I don't want to reduce it to that, but um, they say that all longing is really ultimately a longing to be reunited with the beloved, with the truth, with the universal quality of the fulfilled self, the complete self. And so each of these goddesses uh, can be thought of as a virtue. So we can even set aside the word goddess for a moment and just say, as a yogin or as a spiritual aspirant, what is the virtue that you already have a relationship with? And so you're already strongly exemplifying, you already have a relationship with that goddess. You already do. So Tammy Men, you're a great leader. You are exemplifying the qualities of Tripurasundari, the great regal goddess, the empress of the universe, who brings prosperity, who's an embodiment of beauty and desire. There's a quality, a regal quality to your bearing in that sense, and you're a blessing for everyone around you. For me, uh, I've, <laughs> I've learned to have a relationship with fearlessness. For somebody else, it might be scholarship. Uh, I talk with um, Sally, and she's a writer, and she feels such a profound connection with Saraswati. So we already have relationships with goddesses. It's not something you need to go and find in an exotic land. It's already there. And then when you say, how can I use this mindfully? How can I use this skillfully? Like a yogi, process of skillful means. You can start saying, hey... I've been a little bit in denial of the power of annihilation. Maybe I really need to inquire into a goddess that exemplifies the qualities of death because I'm afraid of dying. And you can go in and build a relationship with, with uh, Chamunda in the book, or Dhumavati, the crone, and really, really uh, bask and build a relationship, build an understanding, get uh, taught what it means to have a... Um, fruitful, a fruitful relationship with that virtue blessing power. Now, one of the things you write in the Shakti coloring book is that mm -hmm. when we work with a deity, that our energy body can be repatterned. And I'd love to know mm -hmm. how you think that works. How does that work? I get out my colored pencils and I start you know, coloring in, let's say, an image of Lakshmi to help me mm -hmm. increase my generosity, oh, let's just say. Uh -huh. I want to be more generous. Mm -hmm. How is that process repatterning my energy body? Okay, I don't want to get too far out for your listeners um, talking about chakras and nadis and kloshas and all the structures, uh, all the jargon that um, the practitioners of yoga in the East have, um, have used to describe the energy body, because really it's beyond description. So all these models, these words, these charts, um, these are really just, um, it, it's like a, a, a simplification. It's like a stick figure drawing that we're using to try and understand something that really is too big for our brains to grasp. But they're models. They're models of reality. They're not reality, they're models. So when we're working with a particular goddess, um, each of the goddesses, uh, I mentioned before, one way we end is to talk about virtue blessing power, but each of the goddesses is also associated with a specific part of the body. 
So as we're working with the goddess, it should be because it's intelligent energy, as long as we don't um, project our values too much onto the goddesses. In theory, just hanging out with them long enough, just like if you hang out with somebody who's really good at cooking. Sooner or later, you're going to end up in the kitchen cooking. And Lakshmi is really good around generosity and therefore probably knows a little bit about money. You hang out with your rich friends, you're going to get some tips on handling your finances. You hang out with your good cook friend, so you're going to end up in the kitchen, you're going to learn a little bit about cooking. You hang out with your friend who's a warrior, you know, they're into sports and, and sword play and all that. You might end up hanging out with them when they go to the martial arts studio or they go to the game and you'll learn a little bit about it. It's just, it rubs off on you. And that is reflected in the energy body. So each of the goddesses, uh, I'm sure that you've heard the term chakras. Yeah. Um, most people only know about like seven or maybe ten chakras in the body. There are 70,000 of them. And for example, the beautiful image of Saraswati where she's playing the vena, you can see that there are all those strings and all those frets. The vena, the, the lute, the musical instrument she plays, really represents the human body. And so the five chakra system, the seven chakra system, these are really just chords that she's playing out of the many, many notes that are available. And so it ends up happening as we work with a particular goddess, that goddess plays a certain song and that song is in a certain key and it specifically tends to use a certain set of notes. Those notes are chakras and the energy channels in our bodies are the strings the chakras, the, the joints in our body, like the vertebrae in our spine, those are the frets. And eventually, when we're a great <laughs> realized being, we can play all the energies of the body, which are the energies of the universe, for the benefit of all beings, so playfully that it comes out like music. And so that's like Saraswati playing her vena. You start out learning one chord, then you learn another chord. And then as people go through the book, they can build a relationship with one goddess and they're learning one set of notes. And that's going to activate one part of the body, of the energy body structure. And as you move through all the wisdom goddesses or all the other goddesses that are here in the book, people will slowly, whether they consciously realize it or not, like you can take lessons on reading sheet music or you can just hang out with somebody who's got a guitar and they show you a couple of chords. And in both cases, you're going to be learning how to play music. And by the end, People are going to be learning, whether completely consciously or not, they're going to be learning to play all the energies that are available throughout the entire energy body. Now, one thing I'm curious about is that the set of goddesses that you chose are from the yogic tradition, correct? Um, I would think it's more correct to say that the yogic tradition and uh, what Sally called this uh, deity practice, they grew up in parallel. They grew up in parallel. I've spoken about the goddesses from a yogic perspective. Deity practice is just one of the tools in the toolbox that yogis use to understand their true nature. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so help me understand, if I'm someone who has a yoga practice, I go to my local right. yoga studio, and yep. I do postures, I do asanas, I... Mm-hmm. I stretch, I do the downward dog, I lie in Shavasana, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't have a relationship with any goddesses. This is new to me. Mm-hmm. How do you make right. that link? What is the link between what I'm doing in yoga class and these goddesses? 
Well, the easiest way, because I taught asana, um, I still substitute classes regularly. I taught it uh, as a full-time job for seven years. The easiest way is the names of the postures. Many of the postures, like Virabhadrasana, is a very specific posture, warrior posture, that's named after a very specific deity, the warrior, wrathful aspect of Shiva. So the easiest way is just to say, hey, when you're doing these postures, um, they're related to deities. And that's just a great way to bring it in. You're cultivating the qualities of that deity. And something that's missing in modern postural yoga, people talk about alignment with uh, the physical body or even alignment with the breath. Maybe the hint at alignment with gravity, right, and the direction of space and time, like what time of day it is. You might do lunar yoga, moon salutations at night and sun salutations solar practice in the morning, but rarely do people talk about bhavs, and I've talked about the bhavs and the rasas in the book, and these are attitudes, they're uh, aesthetic qualities that we can cultivate. So when you're in a vira posture, you're cultivating cultivating this heroic um, quality, this attitude. When you're in a shanti posture, a posture that's named after, say, a butterfly or a pool of, you know, some some graceful, sweet posture, you're cultivating a different buff, you're cultivating a different attitude in the posture, and that has an energetic component. Energy in motion, emotion, right? You've heard all of this before, but it's really true. So if you're in the posture and you're thinking about Twinkies, or you're in the posture and you're thinking about Game of Thrones, or you're in the posture and your mind's anywhere else that's not cultivating the proper buff for the posture, you're really not doing the whole practice. So doing a posture, any posture, is going to be cultivating a relationship with a specific disposition, and each of these goddesses reflects a specific disposition as well. So for somebody who's in an asana class would say, well, hey, that Virabhadrasana you're doing right now, you've had a great experience of it. It's been really transformative. But we can just take that up and onto a whole other level when you start building a relationship with the deity it's named after. The other thing that we mentioned earlier is that all of us already do have a relationship with the deity. We, we have relationships with all of them. They're intrinsic in us. It's not something that's outside of us. So approaching deity practice is just a way of cultivating clarity around these qualities that we already have in ourselves. So yoga, uh, union, skillful means... Um, it's another way of really understanding ourselves. Deity practice is not so much learning a mythology, in my opinion. It's really about learning about those qualities that are intrinsic in ourselves already. And realization is realizing the truth of our own nature. And I'm telling you, (laughs) this uh, conscious, aware, playful quality of the universe that some people call goddesses, Some people call deity practice, but it's real. It's real. We're not the only conscious beings in the universe. It's just that's kind of vain, I think, (laughs) and to think that they all look like us. Um, There are really other conscious aware patterns of energy in the universe, and we could call them whatever you want, but they're already there. So for us doing yoga and building intimate awareness of the energies of our body, part of that is realizing the inherent conscious quality self-aware quality of those energies, in my opinion. Now, the actual images that appear in the book, these images, Mm -hmm. how old would you say they are? Meaning the teachings that describe these particular energetic constellations. We're drawing from thousands of years ago? Well, um, this is the kind of thing that scholars love to argue about. 
Um, so I'm going to hopefully blow your mind and your listeners' minds for a moment because my mind was blown when I sat down with a scholar who is researching not only um, the historical sources of some of these deities, because many of these deities, like um, aspects of Shiva, are named after, or the stars are named after the deity. It's arguable whether what came first, the star, the deity, but many of the deities are actually reflected in the sky. And in the ancient Vedic tradition, right, and you can see this in, in the Vedas, it's actually um, well documented that um, in the Vedic tradition, constellations were associated with deities. The same in the Greek tradition, of course. But that the stories and mythology of these goddesses, um, as they have adventures and interact with different beings, are reflected in the constellations that are with them in the sky. And some of these icons, uh, for example, uh, a very famous one is Shiva Nataraj, uh, where he's in a specific configuration. You can actually take that statue and place it up in the sky. In my own book, it's also true of Durga, um, that you can take the traditional Bengali version of Durga, where she's kind of looking in one direction, there's a demon underneath her, and it's actually, and I'm sorry, I've forgotten the, the actual stars, um, but it's actually a constellation in the sky. Um, so how old is that? How old have people been looking at the stars? I mean, we know from the Vedas that these um, that these deities, some of the deities like Saraswati, uh, we know the Vedas are, what, 3,000 years old? They're some of the earliest texts that we have in human history that we have still existing. So we have really good evidence now, not only that these deities are at least 3,000 years old, but because of the link to the constellations in the sky that these icons are based on, that the icons themselves that illustrate the constellations and the deity, the, they, so some of them must be at least 3,000 years old because it's in the sky. It's what they're named after. It's really fascinating to me. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, what do you think about the idea that a contemporary person might say, you know, great, 3,000 years old, but the images drew on the cultural norms of the time, whether it was using certain metal formations or other images that were part of the culture of India at that time? And what about having Mm some 21st century versions of these archetypal energies that are radically modern in a different kind of way. What do you think about that? Well, first off, i got to say that that's part of my secret uh, agenda, is I really, these deities, these archetypal energies, these conscious patterns of awareness, they don't just live in India. If we think that for some reason that Kali belongs to India, or that Saraswati only belongs to a river in uh, northeast, northwest India, 
that's not even there anymore because of an earthquake 15,000 years ago. By the way, that's another clue that Saraswati and her image, maybe as much as 15,000 years ago, the river that she's named after doesn't exist anymore, but we can see the ancient bed with satellite photography. It's there. So maybe 15,000 years. But the imagery does reflect a set of norms that are rather alien to us in the West. Um, for example, many of the goddesses are topless, which was not uncommon um, in the regions where these goddesses came from. But it seems very awkward to us in the West if we're not used to <laughs> thinking of people that way. And it's true that the deities are depicted in the royal fashions of the times when their worship first became really um, encoded and popular, um, when their images became canon. So you're seeing... In many cases, deities are addressed in the royal fashion of 9th century Cholas, uh, the Chola Empire. Not Cholas as in Athenas, but uh, Chola Empire, right? And um, for me at least, uh, I have to admit, I I'd also think that this is problematic because I think there's a subtle implication that's encoded into these that you need to be rich in order to be um, divine and that you need to be wearing fine silks and gold. And I understand that this is really meant to talk about the quality of effulgence, that when you're a fully realized being, you feel wealthy, you feel regal. I understand that. But I think there's also a subtle implication that, hey, maybe I'm not good enough if I don't look like that. And, and I get that. I really get that. And the reason why I don't experiment much with that yet and why I don't encourage other people to do that yet it's because I'm continuing to find the symbolic meaning of the different ornaments, the different jewels, the different uh, clothing has all kinds of subtle implications. It's very difficult for people to understand if they haven't studied it carefully. And I'll give you a really concrete example. I've seen modern people thinking, okay, Kali, mayhem and, and death and chaos. So I'm just going to put a chainsaw in one hand. I'm going to put a machine gun in another hand. And then, oh, that's going to be like modern version of Kali. Because she's naked anyway. I don't have to put any clothes on her. I'm just going to like, give her some, a whole bunch of weapons, like modern weapons. Boom. And what we don't understand is that the attributes that she's holding isn't just about chaos and mayhem. They're describing specific ways that her blessing power can be um, expressed. So, yeah, she's holding a blood-spattered sword, but the sword is a sharp edge. It's precise. It's for separating real from unreal is very different than a machine gun. And a machine gun is not even like a bow and arrow. A bow and arrow is a way of projecting your energy, the piercing quality of sensory perception. It's very precise. You aim it. It's not scattered all over the place like you might if you put a machine gun on full auto and just spray it around. That's not... You, it would be better, it would be more accurate to use a sniper rifle. Do you see what I'm saying? And so a chainsaw, it just wouldn't even be appropriate because it's, there's no, it's not the same kind of precision as uh, a skinning knife, for example. And the implication of a skinning knife is not just this sharp thing or dangerous or scary or pretty. It's specifically used to, re, to strip off the skin, which is symbolizing our false self, our um, facade, the mask that we wear in society. So that just the, the naked truth, the raw, quivering quality of our innermost self is exposed at all times, which is why Chinamasta holds a skinning knife. And so if we just put a, a cleaver into our hand, you know, thinking that, oh, it's just a sharp thing, and we're going to update a little bit, we put a buck knife in our hand, 
it's not going to carry the same symbolic quality. And so if we want to experiment, I really want to someday, but I really feel like we need to do this responsibly and in an informed way. And so that's why I haven't been doing it yet. With all of my study, um, I really feel like um, I want to do this with integrity, and I'm not in a rush to make that happen. Okay, Ikabumi, I'm going to push just a little bit further and maybe go a little too far. But okay. have you seen any of the Avengers movies, any of the Marvel comic strip? Yeah, yeah. So what's your thought of contemporary characters like, you know, Thor or Captain America and people saying, look, you mm-hmm. know, they're just like gods and goddesses. There are contemporary version, <laughs> and, you know, and, and people created them in contemporary society, just like people, you know, thousands of years ago created Kali and Durga, right. etc. What do you think of that? Uh, I think it's complete hogwash, and I'll explain why. Um, I had a debate, actually, with a couple scholars about this. Uh, somebody, as a, a modern uh, noir artist, had made a tonka, used all of the format, and put... Uh, uh, put a big image of the Hulk in the middle of it, like green-skinned Marvel character, the Hulk, right? Yep. And he put it in the Tonka, and he's selling it as, as modern art. And people saying, oh, this is great, new archetypes, you know, the kids can relate to this and the qualities. But see, the Hulk as, um, an, ex- as a, an embodied quality of the id, he might be a protective, wrathful, protector deity, we might look at him that way, but really his energetic quality is closer to that of an Asura or a Titan. Because he's not fully realized. He's not in mind. He's not happy. I mean, that character is just not happy. And it's, it's, not, it's just not a clean transition. I, I think maybe that some of the characters in 3,000 years, they might have clarified themselves and people might have clarified the relationships to them enough that we could start using them practically for realization practice. But right now, it's, it's just, it's foolhardy. It's, it's, it's rubbish, in my opinion. I, I just think that um, these characters are more exemplifying. You, you see, there's so much sophistication to the teachings that people don't know. They think, oh, powerful must be God. And they don't understand that there's lots of powerful beings in the universe. They haven't looked at the Six Realms teaching. They don't know that some of these beings are really much more like the demon realm, um, sort of like a, a demonic, wrathful, like a vampire. It's more of a demon realm being. And then the Titan realm are like these uh, jealous gods. They're very, very powerful, but they're not fully realized. Whereas deities have great power, but they're not going around stomping around most of the time showing it off. And they're, they're, there's a certain quality of contentment and playfulness to them that just really doesn't be, seem to be true of these Marvel characters. When you look at the posters of them, they're all frowning. They're all running somewhere in a big hurry. Um, and that's really just doesn't have the energetic quality of the deity, of the deity realm of the Deva Loka. And so it's, it's just not, it's not an easy translation. The costumes that they're wearing are not related to the energy body. The, for example, the deities wear very specific jewelry on very specific parts of the body, and those parts of the body are related to specific chakras. So when a deity is wearing an armband, this symbolizes a specific kind of integrity that they have chosen to keep in order to be in the body. And I don't see many superheroes wearing armbands or earrings or um, 
the necklaces that symbolize vows that we keep, right, that relate to the heart chakra. This stuff is so sophisticated, Tammy. I just, I could spend hours talking about it, and it's not, it's just not an easy translation into superheroes. And it's really, it's a completely different realm of experience. And I think that um, encouraging, uh, when I was talking with people about this Tibetan guy, you know, he's very knowledgeable about his own tradition and the iconography, but he's not a practitioner. He's not a guru. He doesn't really understand how these images connect to the subtle body. It, it's, it's can, it can be both very simple and it is also very precise and sophisticated. It's really, these images should be thought of more as uh, prescription medicine and less as candy. It's really not here so much for enjoyment, although it can be enjoyable, but they need to be understood as precise, sophisticated, and powerful. And if we are not willing to do the homework on our own to do the research and understand them, then we really should turn to an expert. Like, uh, that's why we've got pharmacies, that's why we've got doctors, and have the expert give you the prescription, not go out and think, well, I need more power, so I'm going to put a Hulk on my altar. It's um, going to confuse the energy body because it's not a compatible energy with the process of realization. The Hulk is not a realized being. Well, I think you have made a very compelling case about the, <laughs> you have, about the power and the nuanced sophistication of working with these traditional images. But I want to ask you another direct question, if, if I can. Sure. Yes, we can think of these goddess figures as bringing certain gifts and powers and virtues that we need. I get that. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me, though, even though you've tiptoed around a little bit, that you believe that these goddess images are not just mm -hmm. archetypal energies that we're invoking, but they're actual living beings, if you will. They live as beings outside of us humans outside of our ability to make up characters and describe them accurately, but they're living beings. That's what you believe. Yes, I do. And all my non-dualist friends uh, will probably cringe when they hear that, but that's just the straight up truth. I have a relationship with these goddesses and my experience of them uh, when they show up in my field of awareness when I'm meditating, when they show up in my field of awareness when I'm dreaming, uh, when they showed up in my field of awareness as a poster on a wall, when I walk into a restaurant at a significant time, I'm talking to somebody and boom, I see an image of Lakshmi. That's a cue to me that the goddess is present. And to me, that's a very living and real relationship with an actual person that actually has, it's not a human person, but an actual person with whom I have a relationship. Yes, I, I have to admit it. I do tiptoe around it. it it's, it seems kind of wacky, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm, for better or worse, you can call me. No, that's okay. I just want to, I think it's fine. I just want to kind of put it out there. And I guess what I'd, I'd like to know is what gives you, from your own experience, what has given mm -hmm. you that conviction? See, now we're getting into the place where my own, my own teachers, my spiritual teachers say that um, it's, not helpful to people to talk about your own experiences because, um, uh, one, it can aggrandize your personal ego, uh, but two, that people who are going to build relationships with these deities start thinking, well, hey, 
if this guy was worshiping Lakshmi and he started floating through the air and I'm not floating through the air, then maybe I'm not doing it right. Um, I don't want to create an artificial um, standard for people, but I will say this, that um, I can give a concrete example that um, a friend of mine, I've been avoiding Lakshmi. Um, I've been avoiding this goddess of beauty and pleasure and abundance and wealth of physical embodiedness. And I was way more afraid of Lakshmi than I was of Kali because I didn't want to get attached. I was scared of having anything that I couldn't replace. I didn't want to get hooked into um, the beauty and abundance of the material world. I just really, you know, I thought I was a very spiritual being, right? So I've been running from Lakshmi. And um, there's teachings about this, too. When you run from the... When you start on this practice, <laughs> um, doing spiritual practice is said to make you adorable to the deities. And if we think of these deities as virtues, like generosity, um, and we start doing spiritual practice, these virtues start showing up in our life. We start being generous with our knowledge, for example, right? And that's Lakshmi, working through us. And sooner or later, in my opinion, those goddesses who are aware of what's happening are going to start making their presence known in your life. And so I've been doing years and years of uh, spiritual practice, and I've been working with some deities, and I've been really avoiding her. I was scared of her. And um, then my mother, who worked for an Indian jeweler, um, uh, she handed me a gift package from her boss and her boss um, was um, moving and her husband had died. And so she wanted to um, get rid of some things that she'd had around that had memories attached to them. And I was like, Oh, how sweet. You know, she, she gave me a gift. I don't really know this. So I don't know, whatever. I thought maybe, you know, it might be some cheap jewelry or something. And I rolled it out and there were all these statues of Lakshmi and my heart just kind of, you know, just did the whole thing in my chest. I was like, wow. Lakshmi has arrived in my life. Because a deity that shows up on the asked for, that's considered to be the greatest upaya, our spiritual remedy, that means that your good karmas have come to such a right place that that virtue, blessing, power is just showing up in your life unbidden for, and now it's your time to um, really to, to eat, to bask in the fruit of that karma. And so I was like, wow, okay. Lakshmi has shown up into my life. And to make a long story short, um, I went and did practice um, for her. And I was like, okay, I put her up on my altar and um, my whole world turned upside down. I had a really intense um, spiritual experience at that time. And um, as a result of that, um, I got a clear um, vision of doing something, which was basically to take a message to this um, woman, this Indian woman that my mother worked for, and I was told what she would give me in return. And um, I'm still wearing those gold earrings to this day. It's an actual really concrete thing that happened. I didn't ask for the earrings. I didn't ask for the statue. I just rolled with the experience of the goddess showing up, welcomed her, recognized what was happening rather than denying it or saying, oh, what a coincidence actually engaged in the practice, which clarified that relationship, and I got a much more clear understanding of what was happening. I even got very specific directions. I actually acted on those rather than, again, doubting myself or thinking that it's a fantasy or whatever. I acted on them with a clear understanding of what was likely to happen, whether it didn't even matter whether I didn't believe it 
<laughs> I didn't believe it in the sense of like, oh, now I have a set and this thing will not thing will happen. I was like, what the hell is happening right now? I have no, this is beyond. I can't. I'm kind of even embarrassed. You know, I went to her with this very specific message, and she's like, wow, here, why don't you take something? <laughs> and opened up the case, and um, yeah, uh, these earrings that I'd actually wanted for a long time were right there and she just handed them on over to me and this is the funny part especially considering that this particular goddess Lakshmi I was afraid of and didn't really want a relationship with so the jeweler put the earrings into my ears and these are very old-fashioned handmade um, Indian gold earrings and she goes oh I didn't think those are going to look good on you they're kind of feminine but they look great she goes do you mind? And she busts out from under the counter a giant pair of pliers, like big-ass, giant, meaty metal pliers. <laughs> and I was like, what, what? And she goes, I just want to put them on you permanently. Oh, my. And these don't have a normal hook. They don't have a normal backroom on them. They're, they're wire. They're made out of wire. And so she just crimped them right under my ears. And so now every time when I look in the mirror... I'm reminded that I have a permanent, ongoing relationship with this golden, effulgent, wealthy quality of the goddess. It is, I, it's there every time I look in the mirror. It's not something I can escape from, nor would I want to. It's literally a part of my body now. And um, I hope that your readers or your listeners, um, I've never told this story in the public before, and it's very intimate, but because you've asked me to go here and with all respect to my guru, um, I just really felt like it's useful to share the story. Now I really literally have zero doubt in my life that, um, my inner practice resulted in outer experience. And that when I acted on that outer experience in a skillful and conscious manner, that the, um, auspiciousness of it just exponentially expanded and that, I could actually make a real world difference in somebody else's life as a result of that, because it was a very important and intimate message for her that I can't repeat. And that that was so significant that something I'd been yearning for and wanting uh, actually came into my life in such a way um, that I really couldn't, I can't ever ignore that I have a relationship with the goddess. That's a part of my daily life. It's a part of my body. Thank you, Ekabumi, for sharing the story. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, now you... Does that answer your question? <laughs> well, it gives me a sense. It gives me a sense. And okay. you did answer my question directly in that you do believe that these goddess formations are living beings outside of you and outside of the archetypal energies that they activate in you. Yeah. They're only outside of um, this body that people call Eka, or that my mother named Charles. Um, and really, they're not truly outside. They're more, we might say, out of my conditioned mind, because remember, they're very much um, an intrinsic part of all beings. But uh, this personality that my mom named Charles would never have thought of himself as being Lakshmi um, for most of his life. And so in that sense, yes, that person that personality had a sense and still does have a sense of deities who are distinct people outside of himself. But in the larger sense, and as I've come to grow to understand, um, it's really that uh, 
this personality, Charles, and that goddess Lakshmi are really both playing within the same ocean of awareness and power. They are really part of the same plenum, the same field of awareness. There's no separation between the two, really. It's just that um, my contracted self, my ego self, has a sense that she exists outside of me and that we talk. Okay, so here I am, and I'm listening to this conversation, and I think, okay, I want to get this Shakti coloring book and see Ekabumi's beautiful images, not just of goddesses, but of their accompanying yantras. And you can explain Mm -hmm. to our listeners, why don't we take a moment, and you can explain what that is, these accompanying yantras with each goddess. Okay, so um, we've talked about goddesses as people, as persons, but I made the point that they're not human people, although sometimes they could take birth in a human body, but really that um, they're conscious uh, patterns of energy. Um, In the text, they describe them as being light beings. They're made of light, right? So really, um, these goddesses are not in human figurative bodies. They're not sitting around on a cloud somewhere, probably not in a human body. Um, and so the yantras are actually also a portrait of their energy body. They are actually a um, not just a diagram as in pointing to it. They're actually a physical expression of their energetic signature. Um, and so the yantra itself is actually a much more accurate uh, and precise portrait of this conscious pattern of energy, because the yantra is also a pattern, than the human figure. The human figure is really just there to give us a, a familiar shape and an attractive um, image that we can relate to. It's just easier for us to understand and relate to that image. It's a, um, One of my teachers said it's like the, the big transformer that's on the power pole outside, that the big wires out there up there are like this really intense energy, and we've got a transformer that kind of takes a step down so that we can use it in our house and our little bitty appliances. And if we tapped right into the big wire without the transformer, it, you know, it might blow up our refrigerator. So the, the deity forms are uh, like um, transformers that help to step that big energy down. And so the yantras and mandalas are actually just kind of a um, uh, little bit bigger energy, a little bit closer to source, a uh, little bit um, purer connection. It's actually a much more true portrait of the deity. Okay, so now I'm ready to get, mm-hmm. get my colored pencils and the Shakti coloring book and start coloring. What do you recommend as a process for me around this so I actually get the most out of it? Well, for a beginner, and I'm going to assume that people are beginner because the experts will have an idea already. For a beginner, I would just really say um, to set aside any expectations first off to relax. I think the instructions that Sally gave at the beginning is really nice. Dress in something pleasant, something beautiful, something that makes you feel good about yourself, something that's comfortable. Put on some nice music, something that, that really creates a, a sort of a relaxed, um, inspired, wonder-filled uh, state, something that really opens your heart, whether that's classical music or kirtan or whatever, something that sort of elevates your mood. I'd even add, put something out that smells good, because smell is so important to earth element, right? Like, I like to burn some incense, but maybe people like perfume on their body or scented oil. So get all the senses involved. 
even before you start drawing, think about the room, the light, the smell, the sounds. Think about your physical comfort, right? And get everything all together so that you really, in this um, joyful, curious, wonder-filled state. And then open up the book. Just open it up anywhere if you're going to just start. Uh, you could be methodical about it, and I think that's really great for the person who's ready to do a methodical practice. And the book is arranged in a specific order for those people. For somebody who's just explained, just see where the book opens up. Or if you thumb through it, see which one calls to you. And maybe read the description, and I think that that can give you, help you to build a relationship with that deity. But I think that it's also really important that people give themselves permission to play. It is said that any offering that's given to a deity, if we can understand them as aspects of ourself or, or virtues that we're cultivating, that anything that's given with a pure heart and no expectation of any reward in return is accepted. So if we're doing serious sadhana for a specific result, then we need precision. But it's just like a child. If a child draws a beautiful little drawing and hands it to you, is it important if it looks exactly like Cammy Simon or if it just looks like a big orange lollipop with some hair on top? You're still going to laugh and you're going to love it because it's given with a pure heart. So I'd say to people, approach it with a pure heart. Approach it with a sense of wonder and a sense of joy and without any expectations at first. And to just do this with great love and devotion and sweetness and curiosity and enjoy yourself. That's where I would start if I was a beginner. And that's certainly what I would recommend to somebody who's starting it for the first time. Cultivate a sense of childish curiosity and play. And then see where it goes from there. Now, Ikabumi, you mentioned this word devotion. And it's clear to me that in all of these different illustrations that you've created that now readers have the chance to color in, that you created mm -hmm. these images with a lot of devotion. I'm curious yeah. to know what devotion, not just what it means to you, but what it feels like to you, what devotion mm. is to you. That is so wise. And what I was prepping myself to say, and I think it does really apply, um, the devotion as a virtue blessing power isn't dependent on the object of devotion. So you don't need to be... Um, it's to to invoke the spirit of devotion in your yourself, you don't need to have a specific thing to be devoted to in the sense that uh, I'm recommending one thing. You need an object of devotion, but really the object isn't as important as the quality of devotion that it invokes. And that quality of devotion is a lot like love. It's, it's a sort of nurturing, protective, sweet quality. It's a quality, devotion to me, I mean, literally it can be used to mean that you, you are um, paying attention to something over a long period of time, that you are devoted to it, that you spend time with it, that, that you want a deeper connection, that you recognize or you have a deeper connection. You're devoted to your children, or you're devoted to your beloved pet, or you're devoted to your lover. The, the sense of devotion, it's not love in the sense of acquiring. You know, the, in the West, we have this idea of, of, you know, we can use the word love to mean many different things. But devotion, to me, really is about a loving relationship. And so when you think about this quality of devotion, you can even be devoted to your coloring practice 
and invoke the quality of devotion there. It doesn't need to be for a specific goddess. But invoking that quality of, of devotion, to me, it's gentle, it's sweet, it's loving, and it's patient. And tell me about the devotion in you that created the Shakti coloring book. <laughs> well, um, I'm kind of a fiery guy, and so my devotion was a bit more uh, intense. <laughs> um, it was... Um, Hmm. For me, um, to speak plainly, there was a deadline to get this book done. And I really, really, this is my opportunity to give a great gift back. I felt a gift back. How can you give a goddess anything? But a way for me to express my devotion for the goddess and to benefit other people in the process. And so the way that my devotion um, really showed up in this book was making sure that I did not waste a moment, not a single moment of that year and a half from when I sent that contract to the, when I sent in the final um, copy of the manuscript. I did not waste a single moment. And um, my friends were concerned. I had to, you know, schedule resting time because I'd wake up in the morning and go to do my morning meditation. And then, wow, it was like, like I just immediately all this inspiration came into my system and all these ideas and I immediately went to work. And it really had to do with making sure that this, um, this love letter to Ma, that, that this book is, it's my love letter to Ma. I'm getting all, oh, I'm getting all fuzzy. Um, I want to make sure that it was as beautiful and as auspicious and as true and as accurate as I could possibly make it, that I would have no, absolutely zero doubt at the end of this project that that there was any stone unturned, that there was any bit better that I could have, or not better, but more complete that I could have made it than I did. And I have zero doubt. <laughs> There's zero doubt in my heart. I threw every iota of my awareness, consciousness, love, devotion, everything went into this book. Hey, Kabumi. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the Shakti coloring book, and thank you for this conversation. I wonder if, just as we began with an invocation in English, if you could mm -hmm. help us close our conversation with some type of offering of what's been shared here. And so I would love to offer this to Machamunda, who I was contemplating this morning and who we spoke about earlier. So if um, Ganeshani, and um, Ganesha is the, the Shakti of Ganesha, many people are familiar with Ganesha, um, who's the Lord of Beginnings and Thresholds, um, and Chamunda is really the goddess of annihilation and ending. And um, I think that people misunderstand her as being just wrathful and scary and taking things away. But she's also that complete sense of relaxation. She's the goddess who makes all beings one within herself. And so I want to call out to Chamunda and say, Ma, I recognize you as the beautiful and nurturing mother that you are, the fierce protective mother that you are, and ask that everyone who has listened to this conversation recognize their own true nature and that they eventually find their way back to the state of unity, which is also you, and that there is a sense of completion in what we have done. I've been speaking with Ekabumi Charles Elick. He's created the Shakti Coloring Book, a book of over 40 images that you can color in, images of goddesses, mandalas, 
and that draw on the power of sacred geometry. It's an incredibly beautiful book, even if you never color anything in. And I have to say, when I got to the end of reading it and looking at the images, I was raring to go, quite inspired to engage with the book. You did a beautiful, beautiful job, Ekabumi. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Jai Ma. Soundstree.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.